It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You know what I want. <laughs> I want a top Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Pull Up Trey, wherein I pull up with Trey. Trevon Heath, who is always hosting, I'm the co-host, he's the host, that's kind of the dynamic around here, despite my introducing this podcast. We're here to talk about the Toronto Raptors, the NBA at large, mostly, and then we quibble about other stuff at the end. Today, hot on the heels of a loss to the Indiana Pacers, we have the preeminent the number one Pacers writer, perhaps the best NBA writer currently doing it. Caitlin yep. Cooper here to talk about that game last night with us and the NBA at large because her musings are typically always worthwhile. Caitlin, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm happy to be talking to one of the best NBA writers around uh, yes. and on one of the best NBA podcasts. I've watched episodes of this, I know. With which is, two, which two is your favorite? Long. Between what? the two of you? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> okay, I'm, so I'm a mere understudy. Oh, let's no. not do that. Trey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. You feel now that the last episode we did was on your birthday, you're now officially like you've turned the clock, you're a year older. Do you feel any wiser now? Like I'm at like the age now where like teams are like, oh, like, do we give him the next contract? So I'm kind of yeah. kind of worried. Okay. Okay. This like wait, you're in the fat the Thaddeus Young equivalent? I would say that. <laughs> I'm probably like I'm, what me and Pascal same age, I think. No, he might be a year older. But he's a year older, yeah. Yeah, he's a year older. So like can he be a part of a rebuild age? Oh. I would say. Okay. All right. Can you be harmonious with the new stars like like yeah. Kai coming into, you know, the industry, all that exactly. kind of stuff? Exactly. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up also that the Pull Up Trey podcast is sponsored by Queensway Automotive Group. For anybody interested in cars, looking to get help with them, looking to purchase one, um, they're a great help. They sponsor this podcast. We appreciate them for it. Um, it's tough to navigate the car market. If you want to just figure out quotes, if you want somebody to help you get out of a lease, get into one, purchase a new car, a used one, whatever, we have a link in the bio. You can click it. You can get contacted with them and they will help you out with everything. It's important as far as cars go in the industry to find people you can trust and Queensway Automotive Group, they suit you in that regard. Once again, link in the bio. Another link that's in the bio, by the way, is Caitlin Cooper's Patreon page. Caitlin, if I can get like 30 seconds just on what you provide on Patreon and what people can expect when they go over there, um, what would that be? Right. So it's called basketball. She wrote, it's just the basketball that the Pacers play. That's literally the subtitle is a blog about the basketball played by the Indiana Pacers. So I'm hoping to do deep dives over there. You get those about once or twice a week. And then what's next is I'm doing a mailbag post. So I have about 30 emails right now that I need to answer and come up with answers for, but those are behind the paywall. So anybody can ask me a question, but if you want to read them, 
are going to have to see that. There's also a delightful video of me running around eating popsicles that people can go watch. That's also behind a paywall if that intrigues you. Otherwise, all of the basketball stuff is available for people to read. So I think that pretty much summarizes it. So the question I asked for your mailbag was, how do you deal with the fame? And the reason why I ask this is because the Pacers were in Toronto just yesterday. We'll talk about that game. But first, I I had a really nice interaction with Tyrese Halliburton. Um, He's very gracious. Seemingly, you know, anybody who watches him on podcasts or in media, he's um, he's a good quote. Seems like a great young man. Um, That held up. But the point of emphasis in our conversation was how good your work is. And just to remind the the listeners, the viewers, this is who we're talking to. Somebody who has the respect of an all-star and uh, so much so that he wears your merch, so much so that he plugs your work, and so much so that he'll talk with lowly beat reporters like myself about you and how great you are. This is the thing. The Raptors, they played the Pacers. They didn't play Tyrese Halliburton, and they lost. I want to know like your broad strokes thoughts on what happened last night. Andrew Nemhard happened, I think. I think that was a pretty big happening. Um, Will Barton checking Andrew Nemhard was a thing that happened in the first quarter too. <laughs> that, that, that I, don't, I don't fully understand. Um, Fred and OG shooting the ball really poorly also happened. If you had told me that the Pacers had 18 turnovers and gave up 13 offensive rebounds and Tyrese Halliburton didn't play, that's that's a recipe for death. Um, for the Pacers this year. I mean, they, they managed to win some games without, they're not a good rebounding team. They have to survive that with, you know, getting extra possessions and playing as fast as they do their three point shooting. But that math, I would not have guessed would have added up last night in the way that it seemingly did. But alas, it was, it was odd. The Raptors, they had 18, they, they had 11 steals. The Pacers had 18 turnovers and the Raptors scored, I believe 11 points on those 10 turnovers. The Raptors had 10 turnovers, and the Pacers scored 21 points. Those two things don't often intersect as often as they do in that regard. Um, Trey, you've often talked about your smile, um, its location. You know, you talked about, like, my smile's back. That's when the Raptors are playing good. The smile disappears when they're playing bad. Um, the Barton of it all, the Nemhard of it all. Um, where do you stand on last night's performance? I'm, I'm Current smile situation, I'm not frowning because a Canadian did still – still ball out in in front of us, but I, I don't feel good about Will Barton leading the charge, especially if we're we're gonna have ball handler issues like with Scotty being out. But overall the game I think was like really insightful and you saw like some limitations of what we have as a team from like a tertiary standpoint, um when certain guys are out. And then also it's just Rick Carlisle said, um let's throw a drag screen Let's get Nemhard running downhill on Will Barton every time, and he's going to make the right decision. And nine times out of ten, he made the right decision, which was really cool to see. That's um. Speaking of like the the tertiary stuff, Caitlin, when you were watching the Raptors last night, I get this sense sometimes watching other teams too. You know, we we cover the team. We're supposed to pretend we don't have rooting interests. I have at least small rooting interests for the Raptors at the very least. I'm sure you do for the Pacers. There's something motivating. Like I'd like to see this team do well. That also motivates watching the other team to say, like, I don't think they have it. The juice, the punch either in their main guys to run offense or you see their main guys produce looks and there just isn't enough going on at the back end. When you were watching the Raptors try and fail, well, they they tried and succeeded in creating a lot of good looks, but try and fail to convert on those. What, what comes to mind when you're seeing that happen? 
Well, it seemed to me because the Pacers do as much switching as they do that the main tactic that Nick Nurse wanted them to go to was the power forward, get the power forward screen, then get the center screen. So, like, especially in the third quarter, they're having OJ, OG screen for Fred to get either Wara or Neesmith on the ball and then have, you know, Coloco or whoever Miles was guarding, Pirtle, come set the screen so that they could get 4-5 pick and roll. To me, at a certain point in time, first of all, I don't think that's a very advantageous matchup to get Neesmith on ball. I don't really fully understand why they were hunting that as much as they were. But on the backside, once OG sets that screen, he had TJ McConnell on him like three times, and he's just standing in the corner. So I guess I would ask both of you, does he not have the agency to be ducking in front of TJ McConnell? Like, must he stand there in space while Fred Van Vliet attacks Neesmith off the dribble? Or does he just so, not have, or does he not have the vision to find his own usage? Which which side of this is it? I'll let you go first, Trey. I would say the I would say it's the latter. Um, with OG, I, I would say the Raptors in general, like opportunity has never really been the issue because their major concept is you got the ball, you can do whatever with the ball, essentially. And with OG, you've seen that he doesn't necessarily have the greatest balance. So being in certain post situations, certain seals have kind of been an issue with him. And his typical source of offense has been catching the ball in the corner and then using his power and force to get to the rim and usually separate with creation. But um, with Yak and Pascal usually taking up a lot of that room, the typical usual structure of the team is have OG provide that one speckle of spacing in the corner and hope that he has a good shooting night. So I would say the latter. For me, when I, the Raptors, not only did they look to target mismatches, um, it just wasn't with OG. Like that obviously happened with Pascal down the stretch was that they're working Pascal into the block and we saw Nemhard on him. We saw healed on him. We saw like a bunch of the different, guys on the Pacers who are undersized relative to Pascal on him. He had 25 points on like 75% shooting in the second half. I think he had six assists in the second half. Like he, he really undid the Pacers as much as he could. He had 18 in the fourth as well. And so they were targeting that. But to Trey's point is that OG isn't like a half court. I'm going to pop in and take advantage of this type of guy. I think it's been drilled into him that how important his spacing in particular is to the Raptors, that he needs to maintain his spacing. And if he wants to lift, fine, you can lift. But if the Raptors are trying to set something up on like the strong side, it's not a good idea typically for him to bring a defender over because the Raptors are th- so, um, they, they just try and smash their way into the paint. And so with OG, even though he led the Raptors in post-ups last year, a lot of times it was starting out the possession with a deliberate set action. He's going to come off a screen. They're going to run something. He's going to go to the block. The Raptors are going to laboriously work the ball into him. And that's where he gets a post-up touch or a hit-ahead pass in, you know, pseudo-transition or transition. As far as, like, taking advantage of duckins and stuff like that, that is not something that is in the Raptors' wheelhouse. Um, you read the Scotty piece, uh, that's something that Scotty's pretty good at, and OG is more willing to do that with Scotty on the floor. But a weakness of both Fred and Pascal's, um, more so Pascal in the half court relative to like transition and stuff like that, is that if OG ducks in, he might not get the ball. So I hope that's like, does that kind of fit your idea of what was happening? 
It does. It just feels like you're leaving meat on the bone to me. I mean, I, I don't know how much you really need Fred Van Vliet trying to ISO Neesmith at the top of the key or Malachi Flynn doing that. When you have OG standing right in the corner and he can do a quick flash. I mean, Pirtle did that. Like, Pirtle can float in space pretty well and manufacture these angles. So when the Pacers flipped that matchup, which they needed to flip it a lot quicker and get Miles off of him and put Neesmith onto him, he recognized, like, okay, Neesmith's guarding me. I'm going to flash right in front of the rim and catch the basketball. I don't, I don't know. I just, I, 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 it doesn't feel like that's a really high technique type thing to me. And then it comes to the place where, and I know that OG's not like going on the record saying like, Hey, I want a bigger role and I'm putting all these quotes out there, but it's somewhat reminiscent of miles Turner last year playing alongside Sabonis and not necessarily having the role that he wants and having told the athletic, like I'm a glorified role player here. Like I wrote a piece about miles Turner a couple weeks ago and I put in there that like it, everybody just thinks it's just his position and shift to the five that everything's been unlocked for him. And it's also a shift up here where it's more of a mentality that like, Hey, yes, this wedge sets being run for me, but I'm reading what the defenders are doing on the floor. And I'm going to assert myself to actually go fight and get that shot. Like if you want a bigger role, turn the job that you have into the job that you want to a degree. Like I understand he wants more creation reps, but if you want shots, there were shots for him to be had last night. He just didn't necessarily go get them. That is, that is um, there's tension definitely within the Raptors and the Raptors fan base as far as OG taking going to get possessions, making the most of actions that feature you. I wrote about this at the start of the year, how you, you talked about meat on the bone, how he comes off of pin downs. There's like no intent. There's no danger. And the Raptors as a whole, actually, none of them like they, they run pin downs to start a lot of their actions, like the wide pin just to get the ball moving, they do like weave above the break. None of it is done with any danger or intention. Nobody turns the corner. It just never happens. And and OG is um, somebody who participates in that, along with others, of course. Something that did happen, though, as far as recognizing something that was advantageous, the Pacers down the stretch, Nembhard had this great behind-the-back, well, over-the-shoulder pass that he made um, to Turner, he got an end one. OG with either, depending on what the Raptors were doing, I couldn't tell when I went back to look at it. If OG is supposed to be tagging or meeting Turner there, he was late. If, and and in that case, that means that Boucher was zoning up like directly straight on with the rim above the break and the corner, which to me is like a little bit hard to believe. And I think it's more believable that OG would have been moving up for that and Boucher should have been playing closer on Turner. I don't really know. Either way, that happened. The Raptors faced that double drag again, only OG was on Turner. And instead of falling through on that second screen, Turner just plows his way into the post, catches, turns, and hits like a really nice fader. Not Mm -hmm. something that, as far as like a lot of the looks the Pacers got, that was one of the more difficult ones they got down the stretch, but he made it. I want to talk about the front court. Turner, who is now in a more desirable role for himself. Um, Pirtle, as you said, a guy who can work the angles, who can do a lot of things offensively. What did you think about their matchup at the five? I think that it needed to not be a matchup. Uh, <laughs> Pirtle doesn't waste any space as a, or steps as a roller. I tweeted that during He's the game. He's so good. Yeah. He's very efficient. Um, when they were doing some of the four or five hunting and he had Fred had war on him in the third quarter he's very good at the screening the lower half of the body screen below stay below forward pivot don't waste the step 
and then get into a running motion so that Fred can lead him with a pass. So because of some of that, and Matherin does not defend at the point of attack. That was a departure last night because they wanted to start O'Shea Brissett. So because O'Shea's starting and they don't have their best two defenders in the lineup being Nemhard and Neesmith, Nemhard takes Pascal from the tip. Nees, I mean, Neesmith would have taken Pascal, Nemhard would have taken Fred, but because O'Shea was starting, Nemhard's on Pascal, so they put Matherin on Fred. And that's, I mean, you guys saw it in the first quarter, what his screen navigation is like. A lot of times when he goes over a screen, if you're going to have miles and drop, he's just going to hug the screener. And he did that at Arizona too. Like I'm sure Coloco can relate because when you watch the team, when you watch the draft film, he kind of just like, if it's going to be a late switch, he shouldn't be the person communicating that. Miles should be the person communicating that. And it doesn't always end up that way. So, you know, with Matherin being in that defensive spot, that made it easier for Pirtle be getting loose. Like it wasn't all on miles. Some of that's Matherin at the point of attack. So I thought they needed to flip flop the matchup. That's what the Pacers have had to do a lot this year with miles. His role is very different. And that a lot of times he's assigned to lower usage wings so that they can be switching all the pick and rolls. And when they went to that, I thought that that gave Toronto problems under the last five minutes when they finally did it. But um, yeah, I didn't think it should have been a matchup. That's the answer that I would give. So I kind of want to talk more about Pirtle. I asked Nick Nurse what he's been most impressed with about Pirtle since arriving, if he did things. I'm writing a piece about um, the, the Horns flex pass coming off the flex screen to OG. I think they, there's like seven or eight assists from Pirtle to OG in the time they've been playing together. On a play that simplistic, you should not be scoring that often. But And they actually got one with Chris Boucher, the lob last night. You'll yep. remember. Um so I was kind of trying to get a quote about that, but instead he kind of talked about something Trey and I have talked about the pivot on the catch on the roll that Pirtle uses, you know, he'll, he'll make sure that he's always facing like a lot of guys when they roll, you're facing the rim and they try and keep their body open. But Pirtle is a guy who always like, he turns into a shuffle, right? So he's like fully open and he uses like the catch, the pump, and like he'll make sure he puts the ball down at the right time, but he's always going to use that pivot wherein a lot of other players are going to be using their dribble and their first step on the roll. I'm just kind of like, what have you thought of his process as a roller? Because it's not completely unique in the NBA, but it's pretty unique in the NBA. He's swivelly for sure. He's yeah. swivelly in the paint. Um, and like I said, like it, it all depends on the coverage too. Cause I know people get frustrated with the Pacers at times because it's like, Oh, it looks like miles is just touch and going. I'm like, well, it depends on what the level of the screen is. So I think Pirtle even last night was pretty uh, intuitive in terms of like, you know, if miles is going to be, they started playing miles a little bit higher once Fred made those first couple shots. So then, you know, it is going to be a touch and go get out of the pick pretty quickly instead of making contact. If miles was deeper, you know, he actually is making contact so that Fred has space. Like Fred wasn't making shots, but Fred got a lot of good shots. Um, I felt so yeah I mean I I'm pretty big on writing about screening techniques and I think that um, Pirtle and, and Sabonis have some similarities in that regard Sabonis does some of that stuff that you mentioned as well yeah um, Trey what did you think about the matchup when you when you look at because I can't remember if you wanted Turner or Pirtle right, like Turner. okay so this this is kind of why I want to talk about this the Raptors have been lusting after a big man for quite some time ranging from Aiton to Pirtle to Turner and the list is never that long when you're talking about getting good big men on a team because the good bigs are on good teams typically and good teams do not want to trade their bigs it's yeah. it's usually a very short list of bad teams with good bigs the Raptors managed to nab one they faced one Turner versus Pirtle Trey where are you 
I was I was pleasantly surprised. I think um, heading into the matchup, I thought Yak would probably struggle a bit more. Not in the same way with um, Brooke Lopez, where he kind of struggled because he couldn't deal with the physicality of having both Giannis and Brooke collapsing on the ball and having a lack of vertical pop. But Turner still offers a lot of that same sort of problem from a length and shot blocking perspective. But he was able to use his his extra dribble and something. Uh, shout out to Tim. He always mentions using the extra dribble and getting into and getting into space and converting very quickly on the roll. I think, like going back to that original combo, I would say like Yak has probably surprised everyone offensively in terms of how he could benefit the the Raptors. It probably come at a, a loss of some of Pascal's like ability to swivel in and out of the rim. But I think overall with the matchup, majority of bigs are going to struggle with Yak's um, physicality and ability to actually get and swivel into the rim and then utilize his passing in in those actions as well. So I think heading into the play-in and also the playoffs, like it's a really good sign. And unless we're playing Embiid or unless we're playing someone of that ilk, like I, in most matches, we probably have the better big, which is just uh, something I didn't expect to say. That 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 is a really nice thing to have. Like when you have the best big, the Raptors obviously haven't been in this scenario in like a long time. Even as they made their run to the championship, you could argue that they had the best big in against Milwaukee. I don't know if that's true. Brooke was insane in that series. He was really good. You couldn't argue it against Embiid, and I think you could. You could definitely say that Gasol got the better of Vooch. Um, and, and Gasol was obviously better than, like, I guess Draymond technically counts as a big, and Gasol wasn't better than him, but as far as, like, DeMarcus Cousins, Kevon Looney, like those guys, um, it, it's been a while, basically is all I mean to say. Yeah. The thing I want to talk about next is we're kind of talking about, you know, Caitlin was giving us a master class on how, how you play different styles, whether it's on offense or defense, in the pick and roll as far as screen setting goes, but... Defensive innovations. I asked the Pacers head coach, Rick Carlisle, about this. And, you know, kind of about FIBA, kind of also about, you know, at the lower levels, that there are developments that come along um, in in basketball. Shortcuts, let's say. Schematic wrinkles that help teams catch up against offenses. And his answer was more or less that, yes, there's switching. Yes, there's like-sized players, all this kind of stuff. But I think it's going to come back to defending your man, sticking him, trying to keep your team out of rotation. Caitlin, just like off the start, I want to know your thoughts on that as an answer. Do you think that like that works or do you think that kind of runs into a bunch of problems with how the league is officiated and how good the like offenses are? I think that Rick Carlisle never says anything without having more meaning to what he's saying. So my interpretation of him telling you that is, is that's him talking to his own team. He says that a lot, like guard your yard is like his favorite sentence. And in part, because they don't have a lot of practice time. That was a harping point before uh, the trade deadline where they were talking about, they were having a lot of defensive issues and they're like, we just don't have time to scheme. Guys just have to be better at defending their own matchup. So I think that that's probably where he's coming from in part in like, I don't think that he's like grilling Tyrese to a certain degree, but Tyrese Halliburton is a person who's been targeted a lot of late at the end of games. And it gets a little bit uh, hairy when you have Matherin and Buddy and Tyrese on the floor at the same time. Those, those numbers are good for the Pacers. They've won those minutes, but it's because of an otherworldly 
offensive rating. So like you can see, like when they played the Utah Jazz, for instance, like Colin Sexton is just hunting Tyrese every possession down the stretch to the point where they pre-switch Buddy Heald into the screening action. Like that's where we're at. Buddy Heald is the safer matchup. <laughs> and Benedict Matherin is the low man. And Benedict's like, you know, sometimes he comes over, sometimes he doesn't. Like that's pretty touch and go. So um, I think that that's probably where Rick's coming from because that really gets grilled into the Pacers that they need to be guarding their own matchup and that they want Tyrese to be better on that end of the floor. Like they, again, like it's not them needling him. It's just, I think it's a team wide thing. Nemhard's a little bit ahead of a lot of the people on that, but even with him, like if it's a complex screening action, he can get spun out as well. But that would be number one. But I mean, the Pacers themselves have been, you know, more innovative or perhaps caught up with other teams to an extent because they're doing way more peel switching this year and not just on 45 drives, like post peels, other places because they have to. They're a small lineup. They play eight guards. Like it's kind of like almost being run and jump and transition. Like we're going to get beat. We have to help switch. We have to keep Miles low. That's why Miles's role has changed so much. They do more nexting than I mean, they never did nexting prior to this season. So um, I'm guessing that's probably where his overall opinion was coming from. But that's just I didn't hear him say it. So yeah, it's um what I mentioned nexting and peel switching, and there was like a recognition there that he like obviously that's something that the Pacers do, and rather than you know. Now, now we understand his meaning. He's he's messaging to his guys like, "Hey, let's play play defense in case." Although that that um that like pregame presser that did not make the internet for what it's worth. Um, so like maybe you know it's like it's it's in a liminal space somewhere, maybe to be accessed by Tyrese if he wants you know to feel like I got to prove the coach wrong. Maybe maybe he can hit up the Indiana PR and like get it from them or something like that. Regardless. I'm going to ask the question I asked him, a head coach of an NBA team, to you, Caitlin, and I'm going to expect a better answer. <laughs> Defensive innovation. <laughs> Defensive innovation. A lot of it currently is based on capitalizing on momentum and inertia defensively and a like-mindedness or a hive mind between defensive players or having guys really, really understand a lot of the different permutations of defense and operating like knowing, okay, if this happens, then it's this. And of course, as everybody here knows, operating on that timeline of like basketball decision-making, too much stuff can happen. You might run into problems really quickly, but regardless, you talked about peel switching. Next thing, these are based on momentum, taking advantage of it, and also being able to cover ground with now traditionally bigger bodies. A six foot three guard is no longer sizable in the NBA. That's quite small. A six foot five guard is covering more ground, typically giving you more um, wingspan for, you know, to block up some of the catch radiuses elsewhere. Like I've rambled on long enough. Tell me what you think. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what what I think of that really long stream of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Um, like what a potential defensive innovation might be beyond what we're currently seeing or what I think of peel switching or. So I've done a terrible job here. Caitlin, (laughs) where do you think the future of defense is? Like, do you think that there's room for defense to catch up? Do you think that rule changes are, you know, giving more liberty to defenders to use the rest of their bodies rather than just sliding and using their chest to like stay in front of guys? What do you think the recipe for better defense in the NBA is? Because I don't know if you in like 2013 were like, 
NBA teams will figure out how to neutralize the skip pass that LeBron used to kind of break scheme in the NBA, but they did. So um, tell me the the question that NBA teams are trying to answer. Let's see if you can, please. All right, so let's start Bay now and get a little bit more detailed as we go. So number sure. one, I guess, is the question that I would ask is, which do you think requires more practice time, offensive scheme or defensive scheme? Defensive scheme. Defense for sure. I watch. I watch the Raptors, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> right, but no, like I completely agree with you. So in part, especially for a team like the Pacers, for instance, where Buddy Heald does not want to sit out a game. He wants to play every game. He has not missed a game. He plays through injuries. If you're not going to quote unquote load manage guys and they're going to be playing every game, how are you getting guys rest? Probably by not practicing as much. Or if you are practicing, it's going to be like walkthrough type stuff. So I kind of do question if the loss of practice time for teams, what you hear around the NBA has impacted the ability of teams to defend at the highest possible level. So that's one short answer I would give. That's very rudimentary and not very exciting for people to listen to the next Practice. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. but, but genuinely I do. I do think that that might be part of it because I've heard the Pacers talk about this. I don't think teams are practicing as much and having as many in-depth practices. And I do think that's important to being able to defend as a unit, but beyond that number two. So Offense is a lot more random. I don't think a lot of teams want to be running set plays. They want to be running offense that if this happens, then we do this. So like you can watch the Pacers. They probably run like four basic things a night, whether it's, you know, the wide reject Spain, whether it's their corner play that they can fly into Chicago or do a million different things out of. Is there a way for defense to catch up and be as random as offense? I think is a valid question to ask where you're mixing up these coverages. How can you get a team to be showing lots of different coverages? So I did hear a European team coach talk about this where I was listening. I don't, I don't remember who it was. It was a clinic, but mentioning that more of the calls are coming from the low man now than the big. So that if you're the low man and you are on the two side, you're communicating to the big, what type of coverage you can be in because you know that you have two people to tag. So if it's going towards the single, if the ball is going towards the single side, then you can be more aggressive. Maybe you're going to blitz it because you have two people on that backside. If the ball is going toward the two side, then maybe you're in next because you only have one person there. So it's keeping it random. It's keeping the team off balance. So I think that's kind of a thing that I would be looking into. And then what I just said right there, that's kind of my soapbox topic that, should the weak side and the strong side still actually exist in NBA lexicon, I think is, is valid to ask. So can you, can you elaborate that on that please? Okay. Strong so I, I, sometimes I tweet late night basketball musings and this was one that got to be somewhat controversial that people were asking me questions about, but I'll describe a play to you and tell you what the problem is. So lately the Pacers have been using Jordan Nuara to run some middle pick and roll with Tyrese out of the lineup, having another guy to initiate offense. So it's chin four. So TJ McConnell will give the ball to Jordan Nuara at the top of the key. He will cut off Jalen Smith chin. And then Jalen Smith will go set up pick and roll for Jordan Nuara to our Wara to run four or five pick and roll. When TJ exits off the chin cut, he goes to the corner. So there's two people on that side of the floor and one person on the other. Jordan dribbles towards the two side. That's creating a single side tag, meaning there's only one person standing there. So they get that three point shot a lot of the time when they run this because people commit to Jordan or that they commit to the role. This happened last night with Jakob Pertl. They hit the pay. The, the Raptors weren't making shots out of it, but there were single side tags. So how do you eliminate single side tags? Because I think that shake cuts are pretty dangerous personally. 
Um, and I think that the way that you do that is whether it's the weak side or not, you consistently tag with the low man. So even if the ball is going towards the quote unquote strong side, you tag from whichever side of the floor has two players. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you have yeah. any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I honestly, that's, that kind of runs in the, that runs in the face of how I've understood. I've always understood it through the terms of strong and weak side, but also there, there is like a ton of wisdom. Most people will recognize why it's advantageous for superstars to run empty side stuff because they're limiting the amount of help that can come. And a lot of people will also recognize that it's advantageous for NBA teams to typically not try to pursue just empty side stuff, but to fill both corners because of how valuable that shot is. And so when you start to like invert and like play the numbers game instead of the sides game, it does make me like think I need like probably three or four minutes with this. This is a live podcast, so I'm going to underwhelm and say, I understand what you mean. I'll have to like <laughs> sit I, I, on I, I, it further though. Okay, to, but think of just think about the play that I just described. If TJ yeah. McConnell makes the chin cut and goes to the corner and he's the low man versus you have Buddy Healed on the single side, why wouldn't you tag from TJ McConnell as the low man instead of giving up you're you're either tagging, you're either giving up the role or you're giving up a three to Buddy Healed. Why wouldn't you just tag from TJ McConnell even if it is the strong side? Like, yeah, that's a shorter pass. I'm just, who, is he, who is he sharing his side with? Let's think. Probably like Matherin or somebody. I mean, they're always playing okay. four guards. What, what are what are Matherin's responsibilities with um, McConnell now operating as the tag man? No, McConnell's not tagging. McConnell's the oh, shooter. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Offense. Right, right. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, so you're zoning it, up. You'd be zoning up the two guys. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to envision. Sorry. I was, I was viewing it as them on defense. Sorry. Um, okay. Yeah. This, this probably will move on from this because this is podcast. It's tough to like, if, the, if we had the whiteboard out, I think you asked would... me about a defensive. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, this, I this was is, trying to visualize. The... Yeah. This yeah. is, this is a great answer. I'm trying to, I'll throw something on screen for when this is happening. I'll do I can like send a, you the clip. I have it. Send me a clip then. Yes, absolutely. Also the Nora middle pick and roll. You mean? Okay, excellent. Everybody in the comment section, please let us know what you learned today and we'll, we'll go from there. The other thing I want to talk about, you mentioned, I mentioned, we've all kind of mentioned um, the strengths and weaknesses of the Raptors offense. Some of the strengths were shown last night against the Pacers. Um, you know, overwhelming through mismatches. It did work really well with Pascal in particular. We also talked about how Trey and I, you know, we laughed at the idea of the Raptors practicing their offense. And, you know, you also mentioned how the Raptors were leaving meat on the bone. There is like, for some people, they see this as a crossroads for this team between just based on age, based on contract, Pascal and Fred. And there's like another one that's like OG and Scotty. As far as what you see from these Raptors, as far as what's being left on the bone, do you think that there is a a ceiling that's being an untapped ceiling based on who is on the roster? Or do you think that there is more to get if they approach things differently? And, you know, you hit diminishing returns when you do approach. Sometimes you hit diminishing returns when you do talent. But I'm curious where you sit. 
on the Raptors as a whole. I mean, I think that the OG question is interesting, and especially since you're talking to somebody who covers the Pacers and that that was a, a rumor that was swirling around for a while. Um, <laughs> that was that was the, in my coverage, I called it the Caitlin Cooper trade. That was like, that was what it was during the trade season. I but, did reply to Tyrese about on Twitter about it because I had like a prompt where I asked people what their biggest basketball ick was. And he said that his was when a player looks it to the bench, if they have three fouls and like beg the coach not to take them out, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I had a clip where OG had done that. He had picked <laughs> up like four fouls in the first half against Phoenix. And I was like, I think we can look past it for this guy though, right? Yeah. But um, anyways, like I think it's an interesting question to ask if he would have more to give in a different context. So like last night, one of those pull-up twos was one of the most ghastly things I've seen as a pull-up two. <laughs> the air ball, right? The air ball? Yeah, I was yeah. wondering if something was wrong with his wrist at the point in time when he let go of the ball. I don't know. but And then one of his uh, self-creation attempts where he had O'Shea Brissett on an island and he fell down. That was a little bit awkward for me as well. So the spacing wasn't bad around him in that setting. So the spacing would be better for him with the Pacers, for sure. If the I mean, depending upon who they would be sending to Toronto. I'm only asking this just to wonder, like, is he who he is? Or if there was different players or the Raptors made a change, if he would be able to grow out his game more. So, you know, if it was in a Pacers context and he wanted more self-creation, I don't know that that would necessarily happen. I mean, it's possible that they, the play I just described with War, they would probably run that for OG on an OB. It's not like War is a great pull-up two or pull-up three threat either, but they're willing to put the ball in the hands of different guys to exploit certain matchups. But they're not an isolation team. I mean, that would be a big culture change. Not that OG gets a lot of isolations with the Raptors, but the Pacers want to get to the next action. They don't even isolate that much with Tyrese Halliburton, minus sometimes at the end of games. They are a heavy ghost screen team. They ghost that switch. If Tyrese gets a switch, Buddy runs and sets a ghost screen. Or they try to get to another action, or they combine an isolation with off-ball action. So in that setting, I think that OG would have a better uh, situation playing with the Pacers, playing off of Tyrese Halliburton's situation than he does in Toronto. But when you watch him do some of those things that like last night, when he can't get off an island with O'Shea Brissett, when he has plenty of space to do so, then it makes me raise a bit of an eyebrow like, "Mm, maybe that's why he is where he is in the pecking order after all. It's it's very tough because some of the things really pop. You you watch the bad game for some of the pop. I did. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been it's been not so bad lately, but he is, he's as strong as an ox at the rim, right? He dunks a lot of his finishes. He's not he he doesn't have stone hands at the bucket or anything. He can finish with English, he can finish around the bucket. He has extremely long stride lengths. Like his stride is really long for when if a guy is on his hip if they start taking steps together, OG is going to beat guys to the glass. Like there's a lot of those things that are really helpful for his driving game. He also doesn't get pushed off his line very often. But the thing, and you mentioned it, is the pull-up, which fuels, like there's a reason Pascal Siakam, he he's maybe likes the pull-up a little bit too much nowadays, but he's also fighting, you know, a slower first step in the second half of the season than the first half of the season. A pull-up makes everything go. And OG's at this point is still so incredibly truncated and his body is divided into two every time he pulls up. His legs are just not connected to his upper half. And this creates an extremely insane range of outcomes. He can miss long by a lot. He can miss short 
by a lot because it reaches the fingertips and he's like, I got to make it happen right here instead of like that full body transfer. He can also push it left. He can push it right. And we saw it happen with Michael Bridges going to Brooklyn and also Michael Bridges, like a, a wide pin king, a pin down king, footwork, weight transfer, all this stuff that made him so good as a shooter on movement also translated to his pull up. And that also made him a guy that the Nets felt pretty comfortable, like he's going to get a lot of possessions. OG just doesn't have that. And he also doesn't have like this incredible wiggle and balance to navigate his own lack of a pull-up jumper like some players do. Markel Fultz, for example, like incredibly wonderful navigating small spaces on the court. There's just nothing happening there that dictates like you scale that up. But even so, he shoots well as far as catch and shoot. And Scotty Barnes is there as preferably for some people, the next step, the next wave for the Raptors. Um, but back to, I guess, Pascal and Fred, you've seen quite a few of quite a bit of these guys over the years relative to what else you see. Every team that comes into, you know, uh, was it Banker's Life Fieldhouse? Is that what it's still called it's in Indiana? Bridge. Gamebridge, did you not see me standing in front of it in my video? Okay, so I, I, you know, it's like the what a staple center is it crypto? How long is that going to be? Is it going bankrupt? I don't know the status of different names of the different NBA put. Anyway, you've seen a lot of these guys. What do you think about Fred and Pascal for where they are relative to what they're asked to do? I guess across the league. Can I tell you what Pascal reminded me of last night? Yeah. So last night in the first quarter, I think, the Pacers had four players standing in the paint underneath the dashed circle under the free throw line, you know? So not like elbow, elbow, block, block, like that far down on Pascal Siakam. Not pack line? Yeah. Pascal Siakam driving into the lane, and he finds space in that, like you're sliding a piece of paper through a crack in a door. And somehow manipulates the coverage enough to be able to find the opposite corner. That's just so special. I mean, their shooting was what their shooting was. And there's defensive perception to that. So I know the Raptors have shot the ball better of late than what it was like when they played the Pacers earlier in the season. But, you know, the Pacers still weren't sticking to those guys necessarily. But it reminds me of watching Sabonis last year. Completely different players. But the Pacers did not have the shooting around Sabonis to fully unlock what he needed to do. And you could find a screenshot almost every game of it looking like it was a reverse box in one where there's four players. And I mean, most notably against the Toronto Raptors, who defend Sabonis probably better than anybody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they go to Phoenix and there's literally a play where Chris Paul looks at the Indiana Pacer bench and says they can't effing shoot back up. So, you know, it was like... Sabonis was getting what numbers he was getting. And to me, that was even more remarkable because look at what he's dealing with. And he's still doing this. A lot of times when I watch Pascal Siakam, that's what I think of. It's like he's being asked to go uphill to school both ways without shoes on in the snow. And the Raptors can't give him anything else but the basketball. And he's, he still is able to accomplish these things. Now, is it worthwhile to ask, like, you know, is he quote unquote the guy, which I got asked all the time about Sabonis last year? Well, he can't be the guy. He can't be the guy. Okay, how many guys are the guy? Not that many. You're not that many. Can he make the other people around him a lot better? Yes. And that's how I feel about both of them. So that's that's always my Pascal Siakam take when I see him. I know the mid-range hasn't been falling. I know that there's been games where I've wondered why is he twisting and twirling quite as much as he is? Why is he going to the back down as much as he is? Um, but 
special player. I think, yeah, we sit in a similar spot as far as how we're viewing it. It's been it's been a tough few weeks, maybe even a tough couple months for Pascal to navigate. But also it's like, yeah, the Raptors, they're either 26th or 27th in the league in um, three-point percentage. They're also, I think they're bottom 10 in makes. It's just shooting really does make the world go around. Who knew? And <laughs> that was kind of, um, that was my favorite thing I talked to Nick about. I brought it up and I said, you know, he didn't answer my question at all. And in fact, during it, he said, I didn't answer your question, but that's what it made me think about was I asked him about the Raptors lack of shooting and how they have an opportunity still to try and get baskets out of really high level playmaking because Pascal, Jakob and Scotty relative to the other, if that's your center power forward and small forward in the NBA, that might be the worst three at shooting in the whole league how do you navigate that lack of shooting um and use the i guess the elite passing that those guys have relative to their contemporaries to navigate that instead and so his response was like well scotty shoots 36 percent on his catch and shoots he shoots 31 by the way um pascal he shoots like 35 percent he does he shoots like 34 35 percent and he was like og shoots good you know and i was like ah all right and that was what it was. But shooting is important. The Raptors, they've been they've been a team that's bet against shooting repeatedly. I like I, I'm just curious what you think about that. You've watched the Raptors three or four times every single year for however many. And they went from being a team that was Kyle Lowry leading them into the Houston Rockets, like the Mori Ball shot chart. And not because they planned to do it that way, but just because like that's the way they played. Kyle put them there. To now, you mentioned, well, if you come to Indiana, you can't do that ISO stuff as much anymore. And like this team shoots bad. Like I'm, I'm curious what you think about their their approach on that end. I mean, I'm not sure that Nick Nurse necessarily has a better solution. Um, given what the situation is, you do what you have to do. But I mean, it's kind of like when we did our podcast before the season started, we were talking about passing out of the post. Like there's other secondary actions you can run around that and try to get cutting. But it's like when you would look again, I'll use Sabonis as an example. It's like when you look at Sabonis's points per possession efficiency on passes out of the post, you didn't suddenly forget how to pass the ball. Guys just couldn't make shots. They didn't have guys to throw the ball out for him to draw and dish the defense too. So, you know, I understand why they do as many bully drives and stuff as they do. It makes sense. You have all these wings, you get a mismatch, you draw it down. I like a bully drive, but if you draw the coverage, who are you throwing the ball to? Like somebody has to be able to do something with it. Um, so, you know, I can tell a big difference in the spacing for the Indiana Pacers. I can tell you since Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald were traded. Um, I wouldn't, if people would have asked me, I wasn't like hot on the train of trading Sabonis. I didn't know that Tyrese was going to be available, but when you go from, you know, it's Miles Turner and Sabonis setting a double drag to now it's Buddy Heald being the first screener in a double drag and he's three feet behind the, the line. That makes everything way easier. Like Tyrese is obviously a much better playmaker than Malcolm Brogdon, but he also has a lot more space in the lane than Malcolm Brogdon had their best shooter last year was Justin holiday. And he was shooting like 35%. So, um, shooting does, does help offense just a little bit, I think, but it's, um, Trey, what do you think about the Raptors approach? I'm curious where you sit on this one. I don't think, I don't think they necessarily tried to abandon shooting. I think it was more so a bet on their ability to develop that skill. 
because you saw like through like the the championship run they they got a higher outcome out of OG Pascal and you no saw a little is a big one yeah and you saw those players hit a higher threshold of shooting than they ever thought they would would heading into the draft and going into the the last few you you we picked someone like Scotty who obviously has some overlay with some of the players we have um Coloco things like that precious trade from Kyle Lowry and the they're betting on Nick Nurse being the shooting coach that everybody says he is and I don't think it's necessarily worked out like ideally you should get players that could shoot well and and develop sort of those other skills so um seeing the game yesterday was probably a a big slap in the face because you just see with having all of those guards around all those multiple actions and options that are available for the Pacers. And ideally, like, we're not going to see them hit that many threes again in against the Raptors in, the, in another matchup. But seeing us hit our lowest threshold of shooting and the Pacers having a, a somewhat hot night, for me, heading into next season, you can't go into, if you want to be a serious contender with preying on offensive rebounds being your hot secondary scoring. That, that was the interesting thing about last game. We we touched on it at the start. It's what I wrote my piece about, basically, yeah. was that the Raptors, they had all the extra possessions, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't score on the extra possession. Like, extra chances are good, and you zoom out, and you're like, you know, teams that win the possession differential by five, um, you know, this is last year's numbers coming into the season, they win the possession differential by five, they win like 70% of games. And the Raptors are like, we like that number. Let's do that. And so they ignore that it was like good. This is the byproduct of good teams that they win this rather than kind of engineering your way to it. But the the shooting thing is interesting because I think that the NBA has proven that at a bunch of different levels, you can teach guys to shoot, catch and shoot jumpers. As far as the guys who are able to help move and manipulate the not weak side or strong side of defense but the defense it's really something that these guys work on like for years and years and years and come into the league with that as part of their game and even then it might not translate like a movement shooter in the nba is just so unbelievably important to an offense and um it's cool that the the pacers they have a couple and um especially man halberton can actually, Caitlin, what is your thoughts on watching the Pacers? How, how do they approach like shooting development and stuff like that? Have you seen that as something that they they put forward and they're like, this is what we want to do? Do they prioritize that in who they draft? Like Miles Turner, for example, was yeah, I guess somebody that a lot of people thought the way he started out with his mid range touch might become one of those true stretch fives just kind of like on that line of thinking i guess well miles has hit more shots this year and you can tell a bit of a difference i've always kind of referred to him as you know he was never fully actualized as a stretch big in part because he was never really defended by fives that much when he's out there with sabonis you know he's going to get checked by a wing and early in the beginning of the season when they're still starting jalen smith team started to cross match that so like you know it's it's Jokic defending jalen it's sabonis defending jalen so miles wasn't really getting to pull people into space that much but this year, you know, he'll he'll hit a bunch of threes against Rudy Gobert, and then maybe they'll change a matchup, or like they'll play the Milwaukee Bucks, who traditionally, 
you know, keep Brooke Lopez in drop and you'll start seeing stunts now. So it's not necessarily impacting the rim protector, but somebody's pulling over from him and now, oh, buddy, heels open. And lately they do what I want them to do, which is use the burn cut behind the pick and pop. So cut from the 45 at the point of the pop, draw that stunt with the cutter so that Miles has even more space to shoot the shoot the ball or if the if the stunt comes then you can hit the guy cutting off the 45 so miles actually has moved the needle a little bit on the defense but as far as the development goes i mean this is going to sound like a very uh kind of ridiculous example but tj mcconnell so tj has started shooting threes he's making them at a decent clip he doesn't shoot a lot of them but jenny busick works with him routinely at practice trying to get him to do this so you've actually seen him take a couple transition threes here in the last two weeks he's taken some off of actual movement um it's not going to be a threat like i don't think the defenses are going to stick to him outside the three-point line but you could see against milwaukee the other day that like drew does duck under against him but then he surges out of the under can tries to contest tj after he had made one or two in that game and then tj does like a give and go gives the ball up when drew surges gets it back and goes into the lane so shooting is pretty paramount for the pacers all around i mean they have like a gimmicky bell thing where they make people go around every day and if they make 25 they get to ring the bell it's 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 geared into you you need to be you need to at least be a willing shooter to be out on the floor so um i guess that's what i would say about that a once-in-a-decade type player, I believe Rick Carlisle described TJ McConnell as. Like two months ago, he had a quote about it that I thought was just God incredible. Like that's such a – because I understand what he's saying about like TJ being a very unique player. There, there aren't guys who play like him, and he's a small guard in the NBA who continues to give good minutes despite not shooting well, – now we're talking about shooting the three, but historically not really doing that. It doesn't make sense, but he makes it work. Um, Speaking of which, though, they used TJ McConnell as a stack screener against the Toronto Raptors last night, and Nemhard got a layup. I think that's the first time in my life that I've seen TJ McConnell <laughs> as the stack screener in a play. Anyways, well, I interrupted your point. No, no, that's I was mostly just going to segue into like kind of at the the end of the podcast. Um, Trey, do you have any questions for Caitlin as somebody who's I know you listen to her yeah. to her work. You've the read goal. her work, kind of. Um, yeah. uh, any any thoughts for Caitlin before we get out of here? Yeah, um, like the big takeaway from the game is obviously um, Nemhard, especially for for us Canadians. Um, I've watched him a lot. I've seen him in high school. Seen him in in Gonzaga. He's shown a lot more of um, creation ability than we've seen heading from from college. Do you think this is a new predicament or more or a new sort of development or more so just a, the open space that he has with the structure the Pacers have created for him? Right. So, I mean, Tyrese has been out here for a little bit. I think he's now missed 10 games where Nemhard would have been the starting point guard. Um, and, and some of those TJ's been out as well. So, like, if you look up the numbers, which I wrote a piece about Andrew and some of the stuff that he's kind of taken from Tyrese like a week or two ago that – he was averaging like 17 potential assists in games that Tyrese hasn't played, which is an obscene number. Some of that's the functioning of the Pacers offense and just making plays within the plays. But you can see like, I mean, last night, you know, they run how many stack plays and there's actual manipulation from Andrew within that, that I think is pretty well beyond. I mean, you guys saw all the hits last night. He was using the sleight of hand fake to the right that he loves. He was using the throw ahead dribble to turn the corner. 
Um, he really wanted to show out in front of the Toronto crowd, I think, as much as he possibly could. But he has a lot of guile to him when he runs the pick and roll that I don't think that everybody's really gotten to see because, you know, he has to be a good enough scorer to warrant taking those reps from arguably one of the best pick and roll passers in the NBA right now. So yeah. when you have Tyrese Halliburton, who shoots the ball as well as he does as a three point threat and pull up threat, are you going to shift some of that to Andrew? I think it would be of the benefit to Tyrese Halliburton to split some of that up and, and relieve some of his burden in the long run. But Andrew's tendency up until about a week or two ago where he's made more of a conservative effort to be getting to the rim is he really likes to play off contact. He's a very bump, swivel, bump, swivel, play off contact, get a step back two type of player, even when he has a lane to the rim. So that can make him a little bit less efficient. Like, I mean, it was kind of funny that he went off in the way that he did because he really struggled down the stretch against the Hornets on Monday night. Went like 0 of 4 and was struggling against their drop coverage. The Hornets played very aggressive coverage and then tapered it back as the game went. Once they got into drop, he kind of regressed back into his mid-range dependence. But um, he'll need to be able to get to the rim more and his pull-up's going to need to fall at a more consistent clip. But I'm I'm a big Nemhard supporter. People know this. Um, I think he's a very smart defender. I call him the ghost buster. I think he's the best at defending ghost screens. Um, so I am, I'm a Nemhard believer for sure. He hit a 30-foot step back. He's unflappable In, at times. I... The, the amount break. of confidence, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, and, and he had Siakam on him. After Siakam had definitely some communication errors, faux pas defensively in that game, as far as like late in the game, I thought that Siakam was more or less locked in. Siakam as an on-ball guy can be pretty intimidating. And Nemhart saw all that in front of him and just said, I will move it back to 30 feet. And I, I made sure I looked at, you know, the advanced stats page to see what they had it tracked as. 30 feet and hit a bomb in Toronto. Jeez. I couldn't. That's what he did in yeah. Golden State, too. He started out there and he made several step backs down the stretch. I mean, every every coverage they threw at him, he was just very unflappable. They ran zone. They pressed with Kaminga on him full court. They switched. They put Draymond on him. Sometimes they put Draymond in, and as the roller and switched Draymond onto the ball. Sometimes he was on the ball and they switched him off. Every coverage, he just he kind of ate against it. So he's had some ups and downs, but that's a question for the Pacers long term is, is what role they want him in because he's starting at the wing because his defense is as valuable as it is. But, you know, TJ McConnell is currently the backup point guard. I think that you want to be able to get the totality of what Andrew Nemhart is capable of. And that's what he did last night. It's what he's capable of or in the best view of what he will be. If I told you that the Raptors, that was who they were going to pick. And then Indiana took him off the board. Would you believe that? A hundred percent, because I think he's a Nick nurse type player in a lot of ways. He has, I think he would have a lot of appeal to Raptors fans because he has some Kyle Lowry in him as well. There's some similarities there. Raptors fans do love some – well, actually, Trey less so than most <laughs> Raptors fans. He, he was uh, – a yeah. DeMar DeRozan is my favorite player of all time. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't really partake in the Lowry versus DeRozan, like uh, who who runs the hegemony um, wars. But I think Trey was. Trey was like a DeRozan guy. I always acknowledge that Kyle Lowry was better. But I just enjoy watching DeMar DeRozan. You don't like the Mountain Valley West? charge no. slap the floor you don't like that when you when you're when you're a kid and you're at the at, at the calf you don't want to be telling like his hockey assist is the reason why the raptors move so many i, <laughs> I want to talk about why demar Derozan did between bump mid-range and he hit a shot that makes sense yeah. um 
Trey, any parting shots before we get out of here? Um, the Raptors finished three and two uh, in the five game series, like we predicted. That's right. Which, which was great. I think um, heading to the rest of the the season, I think there's around ten games left, give or take. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to catch the Hawks, which is completely fine. But I do think they're going to win the play in. Just seeing how strong, like when healthy they are, they have one of the best lineups in the league with with Yak now, and Will Barton probably won't won't be playing those games. Jeff Down, um, I know they're waiting to because he has seven more games left on his contract. So once we hit that threshold, he ideally be the backup point guard, and we won't lose those minutes by a billion again. Man, and, and so I think like. Everything is still all positives. My frown is still intact, and things are all good. That's so. That means you think they'll beat Miami, correct? If they win the play-in, Miami, I think is the seventh seed right now. Yeah. So we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't get a chance to play Miami technically. Oh yeah. Okay. True. Yeah. Right. Okay. Never mind. That was that was the Hawks. I was yeah. Okay. I think that they can beat the Hawks. Actually, if, for sure. If pressured, I would pick the Raptors versus the Hawks. Caitlin. Any parting shots for you before we get out of here? I never even got to ask my Raptors question that I had. What's what's the question? I wanted to know what your opinion. It's a whole other talking point. I wanted to know what your opinion is when the Raptors play OG on opposing centers and shift Pirtle into a Romer role and Romer bigs overall. Because, I mean, they're doing this a lot with Miles. So how have you felt about, I saw OG do this against Anthony Davis and Jokic. Those are two games that stick out in my memory. So... As far as the the Raptors are really good at running that OG on a big for I guess the front half of possessions and moving teams into the back half of the shot clock. I think that they they do a really good job of contesting the airspace for post entries. I think that they really harass a lot of stuff above the break, and they're pretty good at gumming stuff up this like the Sabonis thing right although we didn't get an opportunity to see like really a roamer against the Kings because Pirtle wasn't there yet as far as lately Chris Boucher talked about this last night he came out he was one of the players doing the presser and he mentioned the roamer um, defense that the Raptors played and that they have played he mentioned Vanderbilt Jay, Jay Vando, like um, in particular against the Lakers. Now, Vanderbilt hit two threes and the Raptors, they abandoned it. And actually, I don't think it was the threes that actually ruined them. It was the fact that they let Vando get like two offensive rebounds and a backdoor cut for a dunk. And it was like, you live with the threes, guys. You just did a really bad job of playing off of him. But anyway, um, I think that you have to have like a really good attention to detail to play that style. Because you're moving, especially Pirtle, you're moving a big man out of his natural quirks and rhythms, I would say. And so far with Pirtle, I've been underwhelmed by its effectiveness. Um, That's where I would be currently. And maybe that goes back to what we talked about kind of, you know, near the start of the podcast is practice time, (laughs) getting used to all that kind of stuff. But I I think I've been underwhelmed so far. Although I think there are enough bad shooters who still play in rotations in the NBA that that is that is a valid schematic wrinkle to throw at teams who want to employ those types of guys. The Raptors, they 
Matisse Tybel, his suspension was the worst thing to happen to them when they were playing the 76ers. Or not suspension, sorry. Like the fact that he wasn't vaccinated to come yeah. play in Toronto. Him being out there meant the Raptors got to overload on Harden and Embiid and also not bring guys over from Maxi. And it was like, why? Because they don't have to, because they can roam off of Tybal. And that was great. And that logic would be the same just with Pirtle against whoever. Maybe it's maybe it's Tybal, maybe it's whoever, but maybe it's Vanderbilt in a game where he doesn't hit threes. But I think it's a very valid schematic wrinkle. I, but the Raptors haven't been overly successful at it yet, I guess I would say, if that makes sense. So you think that the rationale for them doing it is because they think that they like OG's matchup better. They like OG's abil- ability to defend Anthony Davis better than Pirtle's ability to defend Anthony Davis. I think that it's they like the passive size. Because you know Anthony Davis, if he's out on the perimeter, mm-hmm. he's going to lose that battle to OG. He's like... You're you lose every possession. He's not going to be able to drive by him. If they're going to try and initiate offense through AD, he's going to have a really tough time like manipulating with OG on ball. And then if you are playing Pirtle off of somebody, you get that passive size in the lane um, to kind of gum things up and present. Like we just talked about, you know, Pascal, how much he's facing in the lane and how it's the the paper slipping through under the door, like finding cracks in tiny spaces. Pirtle makes more players do that if he's playing in a roamer position, I guess. I I just It feels like more teams are doing this. I mean, the Pacers obviously kind of have to because they're so small. Like, they have to keep Miles low. Miles is either brazenly helping off a center who can't shoot or he's assigned to a low-usage wing so that he can stay around the basket all the time. That's why I felt like they needed to take him off of ball screen coverages, not because he was doing so poorly, because they needed him back there and because Matherin was struggling as much, it would have been better to switch. But... One technique that I've seen a team counter with that I felt was very interesting, the Thunder, when the Pacers tried this, he was defending Josh Giddy. They put Giddy in the post to draw Miles out of the paint and then ran split action around Josh Giddy. So um, teams are getting a little bit more in, uh, innovative with how many – it just feels to me that a lot more teams are using the put a big on a wing, and it's not to hide the big on a wing. It's for a strategy of having a bigger on the rim all the time. So I just wanted yeah. to get your thought on that. No, that that makes complete sense because there's like how do you how do you stop guys from getting blow buys mm-hmm. in the NBA right now? You don't. How do you stop guys from getting downhill off of screens in the NBA right now? You don't. So what do you do? Make sure that there's somebody at the rim, and you know most popularly with Jaron Jackson Jr. and Robert Williams, but with more and more people now. So I think I think it's a good defensive wrinkle. Um, but as with anything, kinks need to be worked out probably. And especially for the Raptors, because this isn't Pirtle's usual mode of operation. And he's talked about that quite a few times where he's like, I, yeah, sometimes I'm doing stuff where I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, he's like, I'm way, I'm way out here right now. But yeah, um, that's a really good question. Probably, um, man, I wonder if there's like a really great, is there a really great Celtics or Grizzlies writer who they would just like tell you like this is where it's worked, this is where it hasn't, this is what the the counters have been? I'm trying to think because you obviously have the Pacers covered, but I'm trying to think who was the. You guys know of anybody? Well, Jared Weiss is really good covering the Celtics. Oh yeah, Jared Weiss. He was in Toronto to cover. I think in January. I remember it was. 
He was taller than I thought he would be. <laughs> Actually, I'll say that as somebody who goes to all these all these games and sees like all the press, they're always shorter. Anybody, if you plan on meeting me in person, I'm I don't think like I'm a short guy, but I'm going to be shorter than you think. I'm almost certain of it. Just yeah, that's how it always works. Everybody's shorter. I don't know if it's because it's like, you know, adjacent to TV and everybody on TV is shorter. So it's like some of these people end up on TV. So they're shorter, too. I'm on a tangent that I probably shouldn't be on regardless, guys. Um, I think we have closing thoughts from Caitlin. We have closing thoughts from Trey. Closing thoughts from myself. QAG, Queensway Automotive Group. The link is in the bio if you need any help with car stuff. Most importantly... There's another link in the bio that is to Caitlin's Patreon. She is the best covering basketball currently. Um, I subscribe to it. I think she does fantastic work. You should too. Um, you, It's not just like, sure, it's about the Pacers, but as you probably listen to the podcast, you can learn a million other things about basketball from her. Um, Caitlin, thank you so much for you know blessing the Pull Up Trade podcast yeah. with your presence. I have something else I want to say, so don't cut it off. (laughs) You you aren't escaping. You didn't, you have to give me the floor. So I just want to say that if anybody, if for like the five or 10 people who maybe came to this specifically for me and not for Trey or Samson, I just want to say that I am a Raptors Republic subscriber and that I read it weekly. I try to as much as I can. I get emails occasionally telling me what's new over there. And I've never regretted that I've subscribed to that all season. Um, if you don't know already, I really truly believe that Samson's one of the best writers on the internet. The pieces that he wrote last week about Scotty Barnes, I personally know how much work that takes to do. Um, so if you can, I think that you should support that work and read it. And also something else that matters to me is that I do, Samson and I do talk every now and again, and I also think he's a really good person. So it's easier to support somebody's work when you also know that he has a good heart. So I think that you should support his work. Agreed. Trey, you, uh, Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> you got to close up the podcast. Man. I don't know. Yeah, thank you. I don't know. <laughs> support writing. Support independent media. Have a good day, everyone. See you next week.